welcome. Welcome back to another of our Lama Sue Walk and Talk podcast. My name is Sue Langley and today we have the first part of our live member session that we had with John Hellowell recently. Uh, now John Hellowell, if you're not familiar with him, uh, has been a leading light in the area of social capital, economics and basically building uh, positive psychology and well-being into uh, policy and global the global agenda if you like. Um, so we chat to John about the World Happiness Report, which came out in March, uh, comes out each year and focuses on not just which country is happier, but some of the why, what's going on in the world, um, and what can we do to try and improve um, global well-being. So join me now for the first part of our intriguing conversation with the fabulous John Hallowell. All right. Well, we will get started. So welcome, everybody, to another of our Lomasu Expert in Conversations uh, with the fabulous John Hallowell. And um, uh, we were lucky enough to just be in Lake Como together at the World Happiness Summit. Um, and John was sharing some of the things from the um, uh, new World Happiness Report. But John, I just wanted to introduce you a little bit to the group because you've been in this space for a long time and you've worked with some amazing names that some people will know on here like uh, Ed Dina, Daniel Kahneman, uh, Robert Putnam, etc. And you've always sort of seemed to have had this real interest in um, social capital and then building well-being from a bigger picture. But how would you describe yourself as somebody in this field? Uh, uh, a, a convert as soon as I discovered the nature of the data and a proselytizer. <laughs> uh, and uh, I'm convinced that uh, well-being data and happiness science uh, provide a new way of seeing the world and uh, lessons for all of us, uh, especially in the way we manage our own lives, but more importantly, how we design institutions uh, and operate those institutions uh, to improve everyone's life. Yeah. And, and as I say, you do tend to look at things from a very global perspective and hence the World Happiness Report really trying to look at that from uh, a global mindset. Um, so how did that come about? How did the World Happiness Report start? Well, it came from several sources. Um, on the positive psychology is, uh, side, as I think I mentioned uh, in Como, um, Gallup had been supporting positive psychology summits early in the century. And, uh, and I guess because I'd been involved with them right in the early days with uh, Danim, uh, Kahneman and, and Diener, um, they uh, then were instrumental in the, in the formation of IPA. Um, but of course, they were just then starting the Gallup World Poll, and I started using it right from the very beginning. The other critical part, in fact, the most critical part for the formation of the World Happiness Report was coming from Bhutan, uh, because uh, about the turn of the century, um, the Prime Minister Jigme Thinley uh, started hosting uh, a global happiness meetings around the world. And the first one I attended was 2005 in Nova Scotia. Uh, and I met a marvelous range of people there um, from Bhutan and 50 or more countries 
who most of whom were operating uh, so as to make lives better for people. Uh, the, the Barefoot College, there's a whole range of, of marvelous uh, innovations that were going on. So I was very struck by that. And I subsequently attended a, a, a very large uh, subsequent meeting in, uh, in Brazil. Uh, and so I was definitely hooked up with that family of researchers and practitioners. Then uh, Jeffrey Sachs and Prime Minister Thinley together uh, spearheaded a resolution before the General Assembly of the United Nations in two, June of 2011, uh, recommending that nations make happiness and well-being a focus of their national policies. Um, so that passed without uh, any uh, feet, any pushback. Everyone was in favor. So then the question is, what next? So uh, the Prime Minister and Jeffrey Sachs together co-chaired a conference in Timpu that summer uh, in order to plan for a high-level meeting at the United Nations in April of 2012. Well, I was at that meeting through both my contacts with uh, Jeffrey Sachs previously and uh, with the Bhutanese, uh, and Richard Laird was also there. He'd previously been involved in Bhutan. Uh, and uh, in the course of that meeting, uh, there was uh, preparations after the meeting uh, in the prime minister's office about what next for the actual meeting in, uh, in uh, New York. And it was gonna be partly on environmental grounds and partly on happiness ground. So it was a mixed group of experts who were involved and national representatives. It was a very large meeting and very popular at the UN. Someone said it was the most popular meeting they'd ever seen in terms of attracting UN staff who were there in the premises. It's hard to get in. So, uh, but if, if you're already in, you can come. So they were, they filled this thousand seat hall and had overflow surrounding. Wow. Back in the Prime Minister's office in Timpu, Jeffrey Sachs was saying, you know, we really should have a scientific document if we're going to have this meeting to present what is known about the science of well-being, especially in this global uh, context. Uh, and uh, so uh, we agreed. And uh, so Jeffrey and I and Richard Laird uh, edited that first report. And uh, it was I was the sort of numbers person. So it was left to me to assemble the data, which I already, had, of course, had access to uh, through my linkages with Gallup. Uh, and uh, the copies flew off the chairs there. <laughs> and it was uh, quite an enthusiastic take up in general uh, across the world. And uh, so we decided to have another one, which we did 18 months later, and another 18 months after that, and by then, there was a World Happiness Day established as part of the United Nations. It was suggested at our second launch that we make it annual uh, and come out on World Happiness Day. So it's, since then, it's been every 12 months on March the 20th. That's more than perhaps you wanted to hear. No, that's fabulous. And I have to admit, every March, I'm already waiting for it to come out, waiting for it to read it, waiting to watch the little YouTube highlights, etc. Um, and, and I have to admit, you mentioned be about being the data person. And I think the data is is interesting for us. I guess what I'd like to know, and, and many of our people listening here, so our members of Learn With Sue are either uh, MAP graduates or Diploma of Positive Psychology graduates. They're very uh, interested in this field. 
So when you look at the data, obviously data can tell us many things. And, and sometimes what we see in the newspapers, uh, as soon as the World Happiness Report is produced, we suddenly see Finland is number one again for the third year running. And isn't that exciting? And yet to me, that's kind of like... Um, it's nice to know, but there isn't much difference between number one and number 10. Um, so the newspapers sort of alert. But what do you hope that the data tells people? What, what do you hope people take from the data that comes out of the World Health um, World Happiness Report? Implicitly, when the kind of things, to some extent, this emphasis on happiness and well-being rose out of what's called the beyond GDP movement. The mm. idea you're looking at what the goals are, uh, it's part of this also two-way flip-flop between uh, what you treasure you should measure and what you measure you treasure. Well, the GDP was that way. It was being measured for other purposes, but it implicitly became adopted in many minds uh, in policy circles and also in people, ordinary people's minds, that material goods and services were the measure of the quality of a society. Yeah. And uh, once you think about it in those terms, you realize how silly that is. is. But <laughs> there, was, there was no direct alternative measure widely available. Yeah. So as soon as we discovered there were these data and Prove to ourselves that, uh, that, in fact, they did tell you a lot about the quality of life in the places where these data were collected, uh, that that became our standard, if, if you like. Yeah. And so that then gives you every reason um, to want to present these data. The important thing is it changed the international conversation mm. about thinking about societies. I mean, the number one reason, and this is very much old hat and welcome news or welcome affirmation for map people, that the nature of people's reports about the quality of their own life depend critically and essentially on the nature of the social context in which they live. Well, you can see that's why I came into the field in the first place. I'd been studying social capital with uh, Putnam, and we've, we were using economic growth as a way of measuring whether social capital was important. And uh, we realized that was silly. You really needed something broader. And so when I heard about these data, I then said, well, this is what we've been doing without for two or two centuries or more in economics and stuck with material goods and services, even though the early economists didn't suggest for a moment that the quantity of goods and services is the right measure of human welfare. But here was something that could be a measure of human welfare. So that sort of led to that uh, being uh, taken on. And so spreading that information around the world, mm -hmm. uh, then implicitly, because the people, that, the rankings are not important. Mm -hmm. uh, they're a way, as it were, of getting people into the store. Yes. Once they're in the store, the conversation should turn is what is what does underlie a good life for you for others in your neighborhood and so on the beauty as you all know of the, these kind of data is that they can apply at any level from a household to an enterprise to a city to a village or indeed to a whole country and we do find significant differences across countries uh, which then imply that the way in which societies are structured and managed actually makes a difference on top 
of the kind of thing that are more regularly dealt with by uh, people who've been through the MAP program and are operating in the context of a given society. Yeah, and I think what's interesting there, and thank you, John, because I always think that of like, does it really matter whether number somebody's number one or number seven or number six or number five, because there's very little difference. But I think what you mentioned that's really important is what is it behind the scenes? And I know one of the key things that is often talked about, and there's several things that we'll come to, is um, the, the link between happiness and trust in a society. And I love how you sort of measure and bring the data to life on this. So I don't know if you can sort of share how this sort of trust and social capital links to well-being from what you've seen. Well, I, I think I've hinted that I got into the field thinking of uh, these well-being data as a way of assessing how important social capital is, where you remember from the beginning, you sort of trust being an important part of that, and the nature of uh, positive social connections being the other part. Um, and indeed, we found uh, right from the very beginning that the quality, the warmth, and uh, the benevolence of the environment in which people live is absolutely fundamental to their well-being and without it, the thing about life evaluations is they're an umbrella measure so they measure social capital but they also measure the effects of income and, and good health so you can then have a broader picture integrated picture of these various things influencing the quality of life and that gives you enormous power because you can then put pull all these vitally important social factors that were previously in people's cost-benefit analysis for government projects of one kind and another, whether it's rebuilding a neighborhood or, or a variety of social projects people have. But it can take these things out of the footnotes and put them in the main text because they now are responsible for a good part of the benefits that underlie a project proposal. Uh, and that has the capacity to change the way public administrations are run and businesses too, of course. Mm. And tell us, what are some of the, the highlights? Because I've read the World Happiness Report for this year and most other years, um, but I know some of the people on the call may not have read it yet. What have been some of the highlights that you've seen come out this year that you were either expecting or not expecting? Well, of course, every year is a different year in human history, and this has been an, a, 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 at least a third of surprising years, importantly different from what preceded. This year, we, we do our, our modeling with annual data going over, spanning over 20 years, but uh, for our rankings, they're dependent on the average values over the three preceding years to get a reasonably sized sample in each country. So now our three years this year were, in fact, the three COVID years. Mm -hmm. And so we then compared the life evaluations in the three previous years to the three COVID years. Well, for all we hear, uh, rightly, about the, 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 the travails that people have gone through and the trials they have faced and the, and the deaths, average life evaluations were the same globally in those three years as the three previous years. Mm -hmm. So then you have to explain why. And uh, so we've spent, uh, we gave a number of key rehashings and rethinkings and new data uh, to help explain this. And we found that 
it isn't the first time that disasters, and you can describe both the uh, war in Ukraine and COVID as disasters in many respects, they were that, but disasters can bring out the worst in people, and that's what you hear in the news, yeah. but they can also bring out the best in people, and that's what you don't hear in the news, and that which is much more obvious. So we, we knew from our previous research that people are much more likely to do good things for others than they are to be selfish when they're dealing with others. But they read about the ones who are doing selfish yes. and self-centered things, um, and so they're too pessimistic. Well, what happens in this kind of context is that people do come out and they meet their neighbors and they help their neighbors. And we had all kinds of examples, a UK program, for example, that asked for volunteers uh, to help people who couldn't get out. And they were swamped. There were more people applied for that than any uh, program since the Second World War. And uh, they found, because they had so many and they couldn't take them all, they were able to experimentally compare the people who had a chance to actually work for others and those who were willing. So they were psychologically the same people. Uh, and they were much happier given that opportunity to help others. Uh, it's quite dramatically the case. So we'd already seen it after floods and fires and nuclear disasters and so on, this ability of, of them to expose people to the benevolence around them to contribute themselves in important ways to better lives for other people, it actually makes them happier. Now, nobody really wants an earthquake. Nobody really wants a pandemic. But in the, in the course of those disasters, you get the power and the possibilities and the reality of seeing people at their best. And uh, when you do, of course, it makes you happier and it makes you more likely to act that way yourself. And that's what's been happening. And I think you'll remember from last year's report, and it's duplicated in this year's report, we weren't pretty, we were surprised and impressed at that upsurge of benevolence mm -hmm. in 2021. What was gonna happen in 2022 as people were starting to move back to their regular lives? In fact, it fell back a bit, but the, the levels in 2022 are still a quarter higher than they were in the three pre-COVID years. Yeah. Well, since it's so important to people uh, to see benevolence and to be benevolent, uh, then that helps a lot to explain uh, that. The new evidence, I may be going on too long, yeah, but please. here you go. Uh, the new evidence is out of a, uh, a meta Gallup special round of the world poll. Uh, they did a seven country deep dive. It included seven countries in six global regions. So only two of them were weird countries. The rest were all over in every continent, essentially. Uh, and uh, they showed that even during 2022, when this was going on, that feelings of positive social support and of feeling uh, connected with others were twice as prevalent as feelings of loneliness. And more important, when we looked at people who had these feelings of these three types and said, how does that contribute to their own life evaluations? The positives were more important than the negatives. Well, to map people, of course, that's not a surprise. It's, it's, it's part of the, the central core that to uh, see and build the positives is much more important than simply trying to repair the negatives. 
And it's interesting you say that because I remember when COVID first hit, I always thought it was really irresponsible of uh, the the headline news when it suddenly said mental health will be the next pandemic or mental illness this. And, And we hear, to your point, we heard all the stories about all the terrible things. And yet um, there have been so many good things. And one of the things that I loved in the World Happiness Report is that piece around benevolence. And you particularly highlighted in the report around um, Ukraine. Um, And you just mentioned the war there that even though life satisfaction has dropped a little bit, which is totally understandable when you're going through a war situation, the benevolence in Ukraine is significantly higher um and and to your point we see that with floods or we see that with various earthquakes disasters and yet it's lovely to think that we're seeing it on a global scale perhaps um within one country and also because of the pandemic across the world uh how do we keep that up uh well we don't want to keep it up by starting more wars that's for sure (laughs) uh it turns out making common cause feeling you're united with others like yourself uh in helping to counter something bad is wonderful for feelings of happiness but if it's at the expense of somebody else then that's not a recipe for greater global happiness so uh, unfortunately it's always been part of the uh toolkit that leaders can call on is to have a devil outside the gates in order to unite you at home to fight the devil outside the gates. Well, if the devil's other people, then uh, it's obviously a counterproductive operation. So we clearly have to make peace, not war. And chapter three in this year's report was very striking on that. They, they, they found good evidence, which we've used previously in earlier reports, that countries at peace uh, are going to are happier countries along with everything else, and of course, happier countries are less are more likely to be peaceful. Yeah. And the other thing in your report that you highlighted um, is uh, you look at the data between, yes, sort of overall happiness of different countries. You also look at the difference between or the the gap, if you like, from the, the happiest people to the least happy people, if you like, to see is there a is there a difference in countries where there's a bigger gap or a smaller gap? What can you share with us about that to help everybody understand how that works? We previously measured uh, by using the standard deviation of the distribution, the inequality of happiness. I mean, for half a dozen years anyway, we've been convinced that income inequality was not the whole story about inequality. It was the smallest part of it. What was really important was the inequality of happiness. And we found indeed that to be the case. Well, we were looking, uh, because there's been a lot of discussion about inequalities growing during COVID. I mean, Mm. you it's basically a standard feature of the news uh, by gender, by age, by sickness, by unemployment, by discrimination, by color. And it turns out that uh, we needed some primary measure of what to do. So we thought of this idea of splitting between the top half of the population and the bottom half of the population in terms of their happiness and asking ourselves, what's happened to that gap? between the the happy few, they're not few, they're the happy half, and the unhappy half in each country over time. And uh, we did find a growing trend in the gap between the happiest and the less happy since over over the last 10 years, 
Uh, it's a significant gap. It's all, I think almost half a point from the most recent years to the previous years. But, and this is the place where COVID comes into play, that was all on a 10-year trend. There was no increase in that gap from the three pre-COVID years to the three COVID years. And we found similar things when we looked by differences by gender and unemployment and ill health and so on. So we found that in fact, the inequalities that are there are the ones that were there pre-COVID and they have not, on the data we have, and admittedly our data don't go into prisons, our, our surveyors don't go into elder care facilities at risk of, uh, of, of death and so on. So they're missing and they don't go into homeless shelters either typically. So they are missing some of the people who really were uh, even more left behind than they were before. But on all the people that could be surveyed, there really is no noticeable increase in that gap. It's certainly one we want to watch. And of course, it's natural to then say, what do the gaps look like in the happiest countries? And they're less, as mm -hmm. you might imagine. Look, those top 10 countries, their top bottom gap is simply smaller than elsewhere. Yeah. And that tells you that people like to live in societies where there is a lot of equality rather than inequality. Mm. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for listening to what was the first part of our session with John Hellowell. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. And if you would like to listen to more, please jump on our member session. So if you go to learnwithsue.com.au, you will find the full hour, including Q&A, etc. If you are interested in becoming a member, then you will find lots more information on our live learning events, um, our courses, research reviews, and much, much more on learnwithsue.com.au. If not, I will see you next time here on our Learn With Sue Walk and Talk podcast. Thanks, everyone. See you soon.